Welcome to the Scale Ups Podcast, where each week you get to hear Sean Steele, professional CEO, growth mentor, and advisory board chair, unpack the strategies that successful founders have used to achieve scale in their businesses. Stay tuned as he interviews the entrepreneurs who've made it, learns from industry experts, and follows a group of founders still striving to scale. Well, good day, everyone, and welcome to the Scale Ups podcast, where we help first-time founders learn the secrets of scaling so they can fulfill the potential of their business, uh, make bigger decisions with greater confidence, and maximize the value they can create in the world. I'm your host, Sean Steele, and I'm joined today by Stipe Voletta, uh, Managing Director of Chamberlain's Law Firm. How are you today, Stipe? Oh, I'm fantastic, Sean. Thanks for having me today. Very excited. Fabulous, mate. I've been uh, I have been looking forward to this interview for a number of reasons. Um, for the, just a bit of a background for our audience, we have um, we have four types of guests on this show. One is uh, the scalers, the people who are you know successfully scaling their organisations. Uh, two is the experts on scaling, so they might have you know it could be authors, you know, with tools, frameworks, content stuff that really helps people, you know, um, with the from the business model perspective or from a from a leadership perspective. Uh, we're first time founders. We'll be following a group of first time founders over the next five years. But a category that I really wanted to get stuck into was the people who see the stuff that doesn't work, and the people who see the fails, and the people who see the partnerships that blow up, and the people who see the IP, you know, the lawsuits, the, the, the overcapitalization, the running out of money, the, the problem side, because of course we all have access to podcasts and content that, you know, are, are instructive about all the things to do, but what about all the things that we shouldn't do all the things that we should avoid all the things that we can learn from the stuff that didn't work out? Cause that happens all the time, but no one's telling those stories. So for me and Stipe, the, the, what I love about this interview and why I'm so excited to chat to you is cause you actually cross two of the categories, which makes you some kind of a unicorn or enigma or something. I'm not, I'm not sure what it is because you're both scaling an organization in terms of Chamberlain's, but your technical background and sort of, uh, and, and experience has been in insolvency and restructures, which is where I really wanted to sort of uh, double down today, but I am going to come back and, and ask you some questions about uh, the scaling. So for those who don't know who Chamberlain's is, full service national law firm, offices in Canberra, Sydney, Newcastle, Perth, mid-tier firm with a sort of boutique feel and everything it sounds um see you guys are covering a lot of ground right from from private wealth advice through to multinational m a um and with a real focus on that sort of underserviced overlooked mid-market um customer which uh you know having been in mid-market companies i know what i know what you mean by that uh so welcome aboard can't wait to get stuck into it today and maybe we can actually kick off with you maybe we can just hear a bit of the story of um of steep and and how did you get into this field of law and particularly then insolvency and restructures wow well well thanks again sean and and look quite flattered and excited by that intro um look it's it's an area that i've always liked because Failure, in my view, is what defines a person and a society. And so I'd grown up with a family that was in small business and a lot of friends who were entrepreneurial and and we were immigrants to Australia. So you came to Australia to live the Australian dream or, you know, our Australian version of the American dream. So growing up with people getting out there and trying their hand at new business and and frankly, often failing for a number of reasons, some good, some bad, uh, made it an easy choice. Uh, When I was a little kid, I always thought I wanted to be an architect because I loved beautiful things and and I loved going to the museum with my father. But but once I I got old enough to really experience the, the human process of business success and failure, I don't think there was anything else for me left. I just had to get into restructuring, Sean. Wow, how about that? When and to when did your family move here? Uh, in the mid nineties. So we moved over mid-90s. from former Yugoslavia. But um yeah, mm-hmm. look, it's it's always been small business has always been a part of our family dynamic. Even now, my parents and, and my younger sister and a lot of our relatives are still involved in business now. So um yeah, business it sort of gets into your blood, doesn't it? Like it sort of becomes part of the collective consciousness of the environment in which you're operating and, and kids are sort of absorbing it and almost make an assumption like why, why why wouldn't I be involved in that? Because I think and I think what that conversation and that exposure does is it reduces the fear. You know, you you think about why why don't people <clears throat> lots of people have great ideas and stuff they'd love to do. <clears throat> excuse me, but why don't they go after it? Well, 
usually it's from fear, right? But when you're, when you're overexposed to it and you're around it all the time, the fear dissipates because you see some fails, but you see people pick them back up and pick themselves back up again. And you see some wins and you see some joy and you see people living, you know, quite often with real passion uh, in their world. So I, I love that that was part of your upbringing. And that even now that you're in a, you know, a much larger uh, organization than one would call a, a small business, um, you get to bring all of that, um, that sort of that personal nature to it, which I know is sort of formed part of the way that the culture is building uh, at Chamberlain's. Maybe you could just in the context of, I guess, the, the, the experience and the views that you might have on what you think would be instructive lessons for founders, you know, some of the, uh, we're going to get stuck into stories and um, uh, your, your perspective on some of the things that founders should do or should not do. But what is it that informs that? Can you just tell us a bit about your experience? You know, might give, help, help, help people get a sense of, you know, of numbers, you know, sectors you've worked in or sizes of clients or how many clients would you, you know, what are the things that are informing your um, experience and your views today? Yeah, for sure. Uh, thanks, Sean. Well, look, Chamberlain started off as a, as a pretty small firm. We've got, a, we've got a long history and we've been part of some multinational law firms in the past, but, but in 2014, we had about 11 staff our revenues were, were not substantial. We, were, we weren't quite a startup, but we were turning over just over a million bucks a year and, and struggling with profitability and understanding our identity and knowing who our clients really needed to be. Uh, and then obviously since then, we've spent a lot of time refining what we're actually good at. And, and for us, that is just mastery of the middle market. We're here to help clients uh, whether they're private individuals, usually wealthy private individuals, businesses or government or quasi-government entities that, you know, they're not looking for a giant behemoth to look after every aspect of what they do, but they're, they're looking for a business that is competent and excellent, but has a human and personal approach to the delivery of its legal services. So, uh, on any given day now, we would have 100 to 120 staff working across our offices. Uh, we'd be delivering solutions both uh, digitally through online automated services as people on project-based matters and also through prosecutions. And we'd be looking after clients, everything from a, an individual who has a a couple of duplexes that they're selling in the suburbs all the way up to, you know, a large multinational company going through a restructure or dealing with a major workplace incident. So, yeah, I guess we do see the breadth of society in doing that and, and we get to share a lot of successes with people, including a lot of successful startups who are now much more than startups on the books as well as uh, mm. a lot of failures and a lot of personal crises. Mm. So maybe you can give us a sense, uh, given that how many failures would you see or your team say? I mean, cause you are obviously getting informed by your own experience, right? Um, the stuff that you, you know, the sort of practices and the, and the experience that you grew up in the specialization, as well as of course, now with a, you know, hundred, 120 people working with or for you, um, all of the experience that they're getting, because of course all that sort of floats up and bubbles up and you get your experience through their experience as well. So how often would you see fails? How, would you, how often would you see insolvencies or restructures? Like how common is this in your um, experience? Oh, look, Sean, every day at the moment, um, and that's not just because of the financial circumstances of COVID or what's happened with fires in the last 18 months, but historically we would have anywhere between 30 and, and 50 business restructures going on at any one time. And mm. as, a, as an extension of that, we might be looking after the legal work on over 100 to 150 different external administrations of failed companies. So if you're talking about the ratio, you know, we might be trying to help 30 to 50 groups of people and businesses and, and mopping up after 150 or so at any one time. And so wow. by the time you extend that out over the course of a practicing life, it's a, it's a lot of failure, but it's also a lot of learning. Oh, big time. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, fundamentally it's thousands of examples, right. Of uh, that you, that you get to sort of distill and go, 
there's going to be some commonalities here. There's going to be things that happen. There's going to be patterns that emerge and things that you can sort of draw out and learning. And so not to genericize them and, and to dilute them um, as such, but there are going to be some common threads. So keen to spend some time today, of course, on the, you know, the top three or four things that you think founders need to pay attention to um, when they're trying to scale a business. You know, what, what are some of those things they really need to pay extra attention to that maybe sometimes they don't? And I'm, of course, interested in the examples or the stories uh, or some examples of stories that have made you come up with that conclusion, because quite often it's the elements of those stories that people can resonate with, either because they can see that coming on the horizon or they've got the sort of They've got a bit of smoke starting and they're like, okay, the fire's not burning yet, but I can kind of just smell it in the distance. Um, and it helps to sometimes help people navigate around them or they could be right in the center of it and going, wow, actually, this is exactly how I got here uh, was that. So maybe which, which, which story do you think we should start with? Oh, look, I think everyone gets excited by culture, but one, one aspect <clears throat> of culture that I think people overlook in, in the startup phase is actually the very intimate personal relationship and the culture of the founders themselves. And so I, I actually, you know, I'm reminded of a story about a business actually in the construction services sector, uh, which I, I was able to work with for a number of years, a few years back. And, and they were in a pretty competitive sector. They were in effectively scaffolding, formwork and all of the related labor services associated with that and that the labor services side of that sector is incredibly difficult the margins are low uh, there's a high risk of credit defaults from customers there's a lot of issues with supply there's a lot of logistical problems with uh, managing a lot of staff in a lot of different locations the intervention of unions but what people forget is actually uh, they're also low leverage businesses. So people can create these pretty successful labor services companies in this sector without ever having to necessarily engage in the development of that organizational culture. You might have two founders, one doing you know the finance, the other one doing the sales, and they can build a $20 million business from scratch in a short period of time. And that can really cause problems when they start to have divergent views on what it means to be part of that business, what they want from the business, whether it's on a daily basis or how they want to you know, exit the business, whether it's through succession or IPO or sale. And so in this particular instance, there were effectively two friends who had just started as uh, one had dropped out of university to help a friend who was a carpenter and they decided to get into this sector and they developed these fantastic digital tools for pricing and managing labor in the sector so they were able to actually operate at a much lower margin than their competitors grow very very quickly and develop a very strong business However, the problem with the business initially was because of those low margins, they insourced a lot of the work that a lot of other startups would start to develop teams around. And they very quickly became used to working incredibly hard and not paying people for advice and not paying people to implement changes. And so a few years in, the two founders effectively were forced into a situation where they needed to make a decision around the reinvestment of a couple of million dollars in, in digital infrastructure and a new yard and, and additional staff. And the non, I guess, financially driven individual was used to this, you know, relatively exorbitant income because he just spent the last few years effectively doing the work of three or four people. And when it came down to having the conversation with the other founder about, well, what do we truly want out of this business? Is this gonna be just a very successful small business for the rest of our lives? And we're gonna make a lot of money, but we're gonna work really long hours doing things we're not expert at, or are we gonna genuinely start investing in infrastructure and scaling this business and listening to advisors 
and thinking about what we want at the end, mm. uh, this other founder just decided actually this was his end. He, he just wanted this for the rest of his life or until he was burnt out and exhausted. And unfortunately, they didn't have a shareholders agreement. They didn't have a partnership agreement. They didn't have a clear business plan. They didn't have a vision on their exit. And the whole thing fell apart. So actually, mm. after many failed attempts and mediations, we ended up having to physically separate the business in half. And, and ultimately, both of them were not particularly successful afterwards because they no longer had a unique control over a, effectively they created competitors for each other and and they got mm. into a bidding war and they'd spent all this money on advisors and and the scale was all wrong and now you don't see either of them participating in the, the sector anymore wow that uh that alignment you, you know it's interesting as to when when should these discussions take place uh because of course in a perfect world these discussions would be well thought out, well detailed before anything started. But, you know, naturally people sort of go, hey, this is an amazing idea and everything's going to be great. And it's going to be really exciting. And we're just, going to, we're just going to kill it. It's going to be wonderful. And it just sort of creeps up on you, doesn't it? And then all of a sudden the, the values misalignment or the directional misalignment um, uh, can really start to cause problems. And, and if you think about not only did those founders not end up getting what they wanted in the long term, all the other people that were involved in that business who are then the consequences, you know, the sort of the collateral damage, if you like, of that misalignment because that effort wasn't put into um, defining the alignment in the first place. So what do you, so if you think about, you know, one or two of the key lessons from that story, what practically should a founder who's, you know, let's say they're in a sub $10 million business, they've got a business partner, things at the moment are going quite well. There might be a few little sort of, bits of smoke coming out around maybe some bits of misalignment, but they don't have, uh, maybe they don't have a share, maybe they've got a shareholders agreement, but they actually have no sort of partnership agreement. I, they haven't really talked about values, direction, exits, what they want, what style of life they want to have, all those sorts of things. So therefore capital allocation is going to get ugly at some point because yeah. people want to spend money differently. What would you, rec what, how would they, how should they think about how to tackle that? That is that is a really a really good question, Sean. And I think on the on the startup side, so before considering exit, I always speak to individuals about their their pyramid of personal values. You know, ultimately, some people have an in they have an upside down pyramid um, of personal values where their values are their business. So you might speak to a founder mm. and they say you know what, I, I don't have strong personal relationships. I don't have a family. I love my work. Like I want this, this is my life. And when you meet that founder, uh, you know, I call them, you know, the upside down pyramid founder, well, you know, that individual, they want everything out of their business and they might even make poor personal choices and make good business choices at the expense of personal choices. And then I compare that to the, I guess, the iceberg founder, the founder that, you know, they, they have that little bit of drive and it may manifest itself as the same level of intensity as the upside down pyramid founder. They may still be saying, I, I love this business. This is everything to me. But when you start scratching below the surface, you start hearing about, they, you know, they one day want to take their, their, their father on a rail journey through Siberia or they've got a they've got a child who has special needs and they want to go on a camper van holiday or you know they, they have this hobby that they are very interested in or they love reading. And so I, I always see those two little I guess markers as indicators that the founders are very different. And it doesn't mean that diversity is in power, but my first tip would be be honest with yourself because it's only after you're honest with yourself about what you want that you can be honest with your business partners about what's important to you. And only after you've really spoken about what's important can you then start working on your values both financially and non-financially. Mm. 
Wow, that is so true. Uh, because there's also uh, this sort of, it's not a wives tale, but like a sort of archetypal, egoistic, um, exit is everything. It scale is everything. And to your point, lots of people don't want it, but they might, they might think that they do actually, because there's a badge of honor that comes with it. But actually some of that, to your point, they're just, they're, they're, they want to make half a million bucks a year take family on nice holidays. They're very happy with that lifestyle. They don't want to scale it. They don't want extra people. They just want to keep a, you know, small but highly profitable business and they're happy to do whatever they need to do. And others really want scale. I saw this, I saw this term. This really reminds me of a story um, of a couple of IT services guys uh, that I know. One who built a really successful um, practice <clears throat> with a very unique culture, which was IT sort of security consultants, highly skilled, highly qualified, highly paid, and all of them really valued lifestyle. So they'd go on skiing trips together and he was all about, you know, uh, we don't want to have to manage lots of people. We're just a group of guys are all sort of tackling it together and big clients, but you know, high, high expertise ended up taking on a business partner and the business partner. Oh, and if there was any profit left over at the end of the year, it was like, let this just, distribute, 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 like just take it all out. We don't need to build for the tomorrow. That's not the game. Took on a 50% partner and neither with actually no, um, no mediation clauses, no, how do oh, we no. deal with a problem when it comes up? So 50, 50 partnership, no, <laughs> no deciding vote. And the other partner, I'm sure they all had, I'm sure they were talking the same language at the start about what they both wanted. But the reality was the other partner valued building an organization. They wanted as low cost individuals as they could, they could cause they didn't mind managing people. They were quite happy to, they wanted to keep the profits in the business. They wanted to keep cash in the business. They wanted to have a big army of lower skilled people and take on different kinds of jobs. So unsurprisingly, this business fell apart having been successful for a very long time. And both founders were incredibly unhappy uh, with that outcome at the end and neither of them got that what, what they want. But I think to your point, having that conversation with yourself about what's actually truly important here. And if I separate ego um, and I think about even my family or loved ones context, you know, like I might think I want this, but what does that mean for the family? Is that what they want? Like what, what's the implication of me wanting that on what it requires of me and how's that gonna turn up in my family life? Cause there's potential you know, misalignment on that side. That's uh, yeah, that's really interesting. So, okay, so let's, what, what else, what else sort of, when you think about, and I, I love the fact that you've got these archetypes for these founders, and maybe that's a, a nice segue into your next story. And maybe there's a, another story in there about some of the other, other archetypes that you've been thinking about, this sort of style of founders. Where would you take us next? Um, well, well, look, I guess you probably raised it in, in your story as well, which is capital. Um, and obviously, mm -hmm. you know, a subsidiary of that is cash flow, but really, views towards capital and and one of the challenges that i've seen with a lot of startups and i'm sure you've discussed it already on the show sean is initially what what someone values the kernel of their idea uh, round one or, or stage one funding is the most emotionally fraught process and, and we see it a lot as lawyers where you're discussing it with individuals about their original shareholders agreement, their original cap chart and their original plans for what they want to do in year one or year two. And a lot of people are very good at imagining where they might be at this stage, but not very good at being honest with themselves about where they are right now and what right. they need to do to achieve that. So I guess looking at, at stories of individuals and you've raised it, you've got the, the empire builder and then you've got the farmer. And so the empire builder at the early stages is the type of founder, in my view, that is comfortable not taking money out of the business, reinvesting money in the business. You normally see them you know, the stereotypical Steve Jobs or even Steve Wozniak type person. They drive, you know, not a flashy car. They dress like your average guy at the pub and, and they just love their business. And, and those people so often are not good at communicating what they want 
to necessarily the other type of founder which commonly arises at this stage of a startup which is you know the charismatic creative salesperson that you need to help create relationships and help deepen investment in the business and and those individuals often have a very different view on what they want in the short term out of their capital and they can have long-term ramifications for individuals as things continue and so what do they usually what do they usually want the sort of sales-led creative on what what are they usually thinking about from a capital perspective well they're normally thinking about an exit they're normally thinking about Mm. a grandiose exit they're Mm. normally thinking at least in my experience when there's a failure uh, they normally have very very high expectations about what the value of their contribution is at an early stage And it's funny because it's usually that salesperson who ends up creating a problem before the sort of technical driven founder. But as you know, and as a lot of listeners will know, it's quite often that if those two individuals cannot align within five years of startup, neither of them may have a job in their own business because it's only through both of them coming together and growing that they often can develop the right skills to continue to be effective leaders in mid-sized organizations. Mm, wow, that is very true. And I, I can imagine there's been some, uh, I mean, do you get, when you see this, so let's say that you're seeing this happen uh, at an early stage capital raising round or something, What? If, and and they, they haven't come to you and said, can you please analyze our personalities and tell us what's wrong with us? Because obviously that's not what they're there for. They're like, hey, help us raise money. We're going to put this thing together. How do you respond to that? Do you feel compelled to go, you know, I know you're not asking me for this advice, but I just, let's just raise something to the surface. Like how, how do you respond to that when it's in front of you? It, you know, that's a, that's a really good point. And I guess I'll, I'll answer it by way of an example. It, it often comes out once you start talking to people about intellectual property, because intellectual property, as a lot of the listeners may know, is not just, it's not just your trademarks. It's not just your branding. It's not just your patents or any innovative ideas that you have or some unique design. Um, a lot of it, particularly for services and technology businesses, is going to be the inherent knowledge of the founders. So their 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 copyright, their natural rights to ideas when they go from, you know, just two or three or four individuals just working informally together on a project, to then starting to create business structures or separate legal entities or companies, etc. And so very early on, you start having this conversation with individuals and you say, okay, well, we're going to start talking about your capital structure and we're going to start talking about your contributions. And before we even talk about value, I want to know what you did. So Sean, you know, I'll say, I know normally you play the role of of the professional CEO and advisor, but in this case, I'll say, well, you're the tech guy. So I say, Sean, Tell me about everything you've been doing for the last 20 years that's taken you to the point where you've made this contribution to this business. Explain it to me. And they say, okay. And then I go to the next person around the table and I say, explain what you've done and what you're bringing to the table. And then I get their cap chart and their general ideas. And I say, well, I'm gonna need you all. I'm gonna recommend you sign deeds of assignment for all of your natural rights in all of your intellectual property. And I wanna wanna actually quantify that. I wanna make sure your capital structure from day one reflects an appropriate level of goodwill and intangible property. It's something that's gonna help investors understand where you're coming from. It's gonna help your financial advisors in the future and it's gonna help you overcome maybe some bias that you've got about your own personal worth. And the second you ask that, the, the answers to those questions very quickly start to give you an opportunity to say, hey, maybe you're getting ahead of yourself. Maybe maybe your contribution in bringing everyone together is not worth a billion dollars. Maybe this business will never be worth anything. But right now, 
you know, what do you value it as? So I think the opportunity does come up. You just have to be brave enough to let people know your opinion. To tackle it. Wow. I can imagine that would be a, <clears throat> for many, a, a soul crushing conversation. And for, uh, but on the flip side, if you think about the conversations that have, you know, probably really changed you in your time, they're the ones that people required a bit of courage to have with you and, you know, were, were willing to go, I can see something here. I'm just going to raise it to the surface because actually probably no one's telling you this or no one's really asking you to reflect in this way, but just separate yourself from the emotion and let's just talk facts. That, that's a, such a beautiful factual way of getting to actually what is the contribution of these parties and how do we, how do we encapsulate that and enshrine it in an appropriate way so people are being fairly you know, remunerated uh, for what it is they're bringing. That's a, that's a, great, uh, that's a great model. So w- when you think about the practical things, if I'm, a, again, a sub $10 million founder, or, you know, what, what are the practical things that I can do off the back of the lessons from those experiences? Well, that is, um, I guess it depends on the sector, but if we were going to talk generally, as, as a founder, I would be willing to share my contribution openly and to take feedback on it. I think that it's only through the reflection of our actions that we truly appreciate the impact. And so as a, as a founder, you're going to have people that come into an organization either as managers or the C-suite or advisors, both internal and external, who are going to start building on some of the things that you've brought to the business. And in my view, you need to be prepared to acknowledge and celebrate that. And ultimately, not being too selfish about the value of your own contribution Uh, because people respond to sincerity. I think in any negotiation, Mm. people just genuinely know when you're trying to take someone for a ride and, and you don't have to backstab everyone in your business to end up with a great majority control and and to put yourself in a position to be a well, very wealthy person, you can be honest with people. Mm. And uh, as I'm always saying to my children, <laughs> teenage teenage boys, you have to be willing to go first, because if you're waiting around for the other person to go first, you're going to be you're going to be waiting an incredibly long time. Like you always have to be willing. If you want, <clears throat> if you're hoping to get something back, you have to be the first one to offer it up. Like that's the that's the way the world works. So don't, don't die wondering. Um, so I know we've got, uh, we've only got a certain amount of time. Are there any other stories that you'd really like? Cause I would like to chat to you also about the, the lessons that you've been getting from scaling, um, Chamberlain's, um, but are there any other kind of key stories that you think are really have lessons in them that are instructive for founders in this stage? Yeah, look, I guess probably extending on the idea of cash flow, and I'll use I'll use a, a bit of a sexy story around cash flow. So I'm not going to talk about all the the, the finance driven uh, ratios and liquidity problems we talk about a lot on insolvency discussions, but I will talk about just contingent liabilities and risk. A lot of a lot of businesses, you know, we talk about this. This arc. And, and sorry, and Steve, can you just make sure that you explain what, what is a contingent liability for oh, those who haven't come across it? Yes, sorry, Sean. So <coughs> I guess a, a big thing that happens with business is they, they enter into an arrangement at an early stage or at a particular stage in the course of its life. And that may not, that arrangement may not necessarily come with any immediate downside risk or potential liability. But then what ends up happening is certain circumstances arise where you've got this effectively a looming threat of a liability, maybe maybe a, a, a legal claim that is about to be advanced against you or maybe a, a risk which has, for example, uh, there's been an accident in a site and you know that you're liable but you don't know for how much. Maybe you've mm-hmm. picked up this really, really big contract but you didn't <clears throat> have the right skills to do it and you didn't get legal advice on on the engagement for the contract and and you know you've made an error and you're waiting to be sued by your client or you know there's a lot of these sort of 
contingent risk which can come up and, and they actually come up in the first few years of a business more often than later because as your your skills and your infrastructure and your organizational capabilities around risk management and due diligence and procurement processes and, and implementation and quality control start to develop, then you start defining your exposure to these risks and they happen less and less, even though you're a lot bigger. And so what can end up happening is people get very, very excited. They say, hey, you know, I've, I've started on my exponential curve of growth, not fully appreciating that if you zoom into that curve, there's actually a lot of bumps, you know, spikes and falls there. And sometimes I guess those falls can be really big. So I'm recently working with a client who outside of Australia has access to uh, the backing of a really large organization, but in Australia, they're effectively a startup and they're in the defense infrastructure space and they started with a very small operation and then they've acquired another business. And in acquiring that business, which was also effectively at startup phase, they've also acquired all the problems of that business. And unfortunately, they didn't, they didn't provide accommodation and, and risk mitigation buffers for potentially some of the things that could happen in that business that they've acquired that could really smash their growth potential. And unfortunately, uh, there was a major incident in the business that they've acquired shortly after acquisition, which is going to cost them millions of dollars. And so that and there's probably no way for them to get out of paying it. Their insurance is not going to respond. And so that makes me think about cash flow and risk mitigation because I say you should actually be, if your genuine goal is scaling, and this is from a, a you know, how to avoid failure perspective, then you need to be building that capital. You need to be managing your cash flow to deal with the peaks and troughs because it's not true that exponential growth is a smooth curve. It's actually a jagged line. And sometimes <clears throat> the falls are bigger than everything you've earned to day one and you don't want to lose the business just because you can't handle a short-term cash flow issue, even if it's major. Mm, wow. That's so true. Uh, and you, you know, I recently interviewed a, a guest, uh, Kelly from Cleanworks, who was having a conversation about every time they were thinking about making a major decision, any kind of investment of any, like a new role, a new bit of equipment, whatever, they didn't just sort of look at the P&L, pontificate and go, yep, we can afford it. They went straight to the cash flow um, forecast for the next year and they plugged that decision in and they said, assuming there's no further growth, like we've got the revenue we've got coming today and we're increasing these costs. And let's just say we lose 10% of our revenue, can we still afford to make that investment? And so they were constantly checking that sort of, you know, without optimistically going, well, but we're going to take on a salesperson. They're going to add $3 million of extra sales. So let's just take on five salespeople because they're going to give us $15 million of sales, you know? Um, I think that's that sort of understanding of your working capital, but also being able to scenario plan for some level of risk. I mean, I guess you can't plan for all levels of risk, but in the absence of doing any of it, <laughs> it creates a significant amount of exposure, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. So, and and do you do you think there's a certain stage of business, or um, like if you is there a certain stage of business where actually you think it's more important than others, or, or you know, businesses in certain sectors or businesses that are growing at a certain speed? Like where, where is it more important than others to make sure that that uh, level of planning is taking place? Well, I guess you could approach it from two different perspectives. From a purely financial perspective, I would say it's most important for businesses that are pre-maturity phase because they have less retained earnings. They also have more stakeholders to engage in when raising further capital. They may have less established capital structures, so they can't always go out to the market or existing networks to, to say, hey, we need more cash, we've had a problem. Uh, so I guess startup phase, but then from the other hand, uh, you might look at it from sector to sector. So if we look back at the last 20 years of business failure, if you're in construction, if you're in tier two education, if you're in retail, if you're in hospitality, you're in a high risk sector. 
Um, so if you're in any of those sectors, then you need to be hyper conservative with your risk, hyper conservative with your cash flow. So I guess you're probably balancing an environmental analysis versus, I guess, a purely financial analysis when making that call. Mm. I mean, we're actually seeing that right now because I, I do a fair bit in the education space around M&A and I'm seeing that right now with international providers that have been very successful in the past, you know, fundamentally overexposed to a single customer type. And, uh, you know, no one's usually thinking, well, we're going to have a pandemic and the borders are going to get closed. And I mean, international students have been around a long time, but literally, you know, taps, taps been turned off and some who had, were just uncomfortable with that level of concentration of anything in their businesses were building, you know, domestic student revenues, different kinds of, you know, maybe some government funding elements, maybe some online courses, not just, you know, international student flows and those who protected that cash. Well, you know what, there's some good times here. So maybe we should just sort of be protecting in case anything does happen. Those ones have actually 12 months after being able to enroll in those students, they're, they're fine. Yeah. They've been working on pivots of their business. They've had capital to get them through. They've been able to downsize, been able to keep their students in play. And they're going to come out when the borders open back up and the international students throw themselves back into Australia, given it's still such an incredible country compared to many areas of the world in terms of their perceived level of risk and, and, and optimal lifestyle, they are going to make hay um, because they are able to get through this period. But many of them who were overexposed and had not been preserving capital, they're already gone and we're not hearing about them, um, but they're just slowly exiting the sector uh, and sort of leaving, leaving, uh, leaving the market opportunity for others. So it's a very, um, uh, it's a very, challenging but important part of growing a business right absolutely now um i would love to hear a bit about um chamberlain's maybe you could just give you know i'm not sure what the best metrics are or the metrics that you would generally use when you think about um chamberlain's but chamberlain's has some pretty impressive growth over the last you know sort of three to five years could you give um, people just a sense of the how, how this business is growing and then i'd love to know what you would consider a couple of the keys that have change the nature and the sort of trajectory on your growth, whether that's decisions that you've made, strategies you've put in place or, or, or sort of key moments? Yeah, sweet. Uh, thanks, Sean. Well, well, I guess probably the, the most traditional metric for a law firm is headcount because it is, a, mm-hmm. it is a services business. So without the people there to provide the services, um, you know, you, the revenue doesn't come. So from that perspective, we've grown... Uh, 10 to 11 fold in four and a half years. So we started at 11 people and and actually downsized at after starting with 11 people. And now we've got anywhere between 100 and 120 full-time equivalent staff working between our offices. Uh, but I guess to round that out, we've always taken a pretty broad view as to what legal services are. So in that time, we've also expanded the scope of legal services that we offer. So we were traditionally just a specialist property firm. We looked after wealthy private individuals and development companies and government in the property sector. Whereas now we've got 13 divisions which look after the entire life cycle of a a wealthy private individual, a business or a government entity. And that's from effectively inception to death to rebirth and so you know for an individual that's going to be uh you know all their legal needs from once they start engaging with the business world till their estate planning their death and the renewal of their estate through succession planning uh, all the way to you know the administration of failed government entities and and the shutting down of indigenous corporations out in the bush and the shutting down of museums and the revesting of their assets to new uh, operating entities. So we now, I guess, we've gone from doing a very small sliver of work to doing almost everything. And so I think from a capability perspective, that's probably been the best measure of our growth because ultimately... Um, dollars and people uh, are a little bit egotistical. Uh, we, we're here to help as many clients as we can. And, and so we're able to help a lot more clients today, um, not just in number, but in variety and diversity than we could four to five years ago. And, mm-hmm. and that's pretty exciting. And also, the, also the same clients. You know, the, the thing that I love about that um, story and that journey is it's – it's shifting a business from fundamentally transactional to relational. 
which I think is such a missed opportunity in so many businesses that I see and that I come across where they've spent the money acquiring a customer. They've got the great, and they're probably doing an amazing job in servicing that customer. And the hope is maybe that like the, the end game is hopefully that customer will tell some other customers and that will reduce our cost of acquisition. But in the, in the absence of that, let's just keep finding more customers who can buy this as opposed to going, who is the real customer? What problems are happening before they get here? What happen, What other things are going on in their life or their business at the same time as them being here? What happens when they leave here and what are they trying to achieve and what problems occur then? And thinking about the relationship of the customer as a sort of uh, lifetime partner, how do you become a partner of the customer and solve other problems? Because if they already trust you to solve one well, you're not having to go out and find new customers. You've just got a greater opportunity to provide service and value for the same customer. I really love that um, the way that you've thought about that transition. And so what do you think has been one or two of the the things? I mean, I'm sure there's many, um, but what are one of the two things, one or two things that you think have been the most impactful on the ability to sort of change the dial on, on the growth of the organization and to provide th- that service to your customers? Uh, Sean, I, I think one of the things that has been instructive and probably pivotal in us being able to do that successfully with our customers has been to work to diminish the individual influence of individual senior people within the organization and to really focus on developing a brand and an experience and a values message and a culture for the firm. And so if you even look at our name and our motto, it's Chamberlain's Law Firm and it's We're With You. And that sounds cheesy, but if you look at what a lot of law firms call themselves, they actually call themselves blah, 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 lawyers. And even in their own name, they're almost acknowledging that they're just a collection of lawyers. They're not one entity that's working together. And then that flows through the way the individual owners and the partners of those businesses interact with their clients. They try to take individual ownership of those clients rather than working together to create genuine goodwill in an organization that's there to support their clients together. So for me, I don't have personal clients. I just have a job in an organization to do the thing that I'm best at, which outside of my opportunity to lead the firm is restructuring. And so our systems are built around you know, this is not Sean's client. This is not Steve's client. And a lot of people outside of the services sector may not realize how much of a pox that mentality can be to growth. And so I think that idea has probably been the most pivotal for us in developing, you know, genuine client relationships and value. Mm. And it changes. I think it, it changes everybody's perception of their contribution and their ability to contribute to the success of the customer, doesn't it? Because you think about, uh, you know, that, that big shift, that, that massive disruption that Cirque du Soleil created, I mean, pretty different segment, right? Yeah. But everyone had traditional circuses, which were full of, you know, there was always a couple of names, you know, they would have to get a few sort of draw cards. And it was about, you know, they always had animals and they always had a few stars and they always had high risk and they always had fun and so on. And, and Cirque du Soleil, like, no, no stars like zero stars. There is no, the brand is Circus LA. This is an experience. We are here for you as performers, as a team. No one is better or worse than anybody else. We all just have different jobs as part of creating this experience for you. I really, yeah, I love that. Uh, I love that you've, you've tackled that. Um, anything else that you uh, would like to share um, in relation to the Chamberlain story? Look, I guess probably the only other thing I'd like to share noting time constraints is I think for all founders, you need to be brave in tackling the cultural challenge and you need to be prepared to make difficult decisions. You need to be prepared to make financially costly decisions to preserve your culture. And so, you know, if you look at even in the context of, you know, Uber, for example, and and the cultural issues that they've been, uh, you know, harassed about and and rightfully so by the media and and industry over the last few years you need to avoid that at all cost and so we we like any startup or growing business we've had those those opportunities and i can say that we took those opportunities and they were expensive and they were stressful 
But now we have such a better business and such a better culture for making those decisions. And, mm. and ultimately, um, you know, the ASIC forms when you go into liquidation give you options about why your business failed. And uh, the conduct of the directors and owners is one of those options. And so getting your culture right at the beginning is such an easy way to avoid a, a regular fit, a pitfall of business failure. Is culture one of the options on the form? If only, if only. <laughs> That'd be an interesting data point, right? Yeah. It'd have to be assessed by somebody else. Yeah, that's well, right. Um, I would just love to talk to you all day. You've got such a fascinating um, story, such incredible insight with such a different perspective into businesses. And we just rarely get to hear these kinds of stories. So I, I'm incredibly um, honored and grateful that you've that you shared that with us today. And I'd really like to acknowledge you for, I mean, I, I can't believe that you're not a 70 year old man. I mean, the, the, the amount of life experience that seems to have been jammed inside this sort of, uh, you know, young go-getter's head, it just is really inspiring. And the way that you are taking a very human centered, very um, values driven approach to a, to an industry that's not always known for that. Um, and that's really clearly creating, uh, creating uh, positive waves, um, positive experiences for clients. And I'm hoping you're seeing a sort of new standard for others. So um, thank you so much for uh, sharing uh, some of your journey with us today and, and for the sharing some of the instructive lessons for our, our sort of first time founders, uh, how do people get in touch with you or, or follow what you're doing or follow the work of Chamberlain's? Oh, well, well, firstly, thanks a lot, Sean. And, and right back at you, it's been illuminating chatting. Uh, but if people want to reach out, they can find us at chamberlains.com.au or they can just Google me online. I'm, I'm on TikTok, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Instagram. They can reach out whatever way is convenient. Love it. Love it. Well, folks, I hope you've enjoyed the show today. Huge thanks um, to, to Stipe. And uh, a couple of things before you go. If you got value from today, uh, the greatest thing you can do uh, to, to tell us about that is actually to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And the reason for that is we read every one of them. The whole team gets a huge kick uh, out, of your, uh, out of your feedback. And it helps, of course, the algorithms find, find its way to get it into the hands of other people so we can share, um, share these, these lessons with others. If you'd like to know when uh, new episodes are about to drop or you'd like to be notified when free tools or resources uh, are available, just jump onto the website, pop your email on there. Or um, if like Stipe, you're a social animal, uh, you can just pick your favorite platform, actually other than Twitter, uh, but you can find us on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and YouTube and, and all over the, and, and Instagram and all over the place. Uh, the handle is at Scale Podcast. Uh, but remember that the actual only thing that can guarantee that you won't scale is giving up. So you have to stay unshakable in your faith that you're going to get there, but remain flexible in your approach. Uh, you've been listening to the Scale Ups podcast. I'm Sean Steele and look forward to speaking with you again next week. Thanks very much. G'day everyone, just a couple of quick things before you go. If you have questions that you'd love myself or an upcoming guest to tackle about challenges that you're facing in scaling your business, please just jump straight on the website, scaleupspodcast.com. You can record your message straight from your mobile by hitting the button on the right-hand side of the page, or you can just email them the old-fashioned way, questions at scaleupspodcast.com. And just a quick reminder, nothing we spoke about today constitutes financial or business advice. If you are considering making big decisions in your business, Seek out a professional who can look at your situation in detail and make sure you're getting sound, personalized advice. Thanks for listening. Look forward to being back in your podcast feed next week.